Well, I want to thank you all for being here this morning. Uh, as you can tell, we have the wrong bald pastor up here. Uh, <laughs> uh, they are just still on vacation, and as we all know, very, very well-deserved vacation and break for them, uh, and definitely glad they get a little bit of time away and time to rest. And so, uh, But last week, if you would remember, Pastor Craig discussed uh, Genesis chapter 18 and Genesis chapter 19, and from that we saw... Abraham pleading with the Lord to not have his nephew Lot swept away in God's judgment that was about to come upon Sodom. And God had patiently endured with the sinfulness of Sodom and uh, God was, you know, for a time willing to bear it and it had reached a boiling point, if you will, to which uh, God then, as we saw last week, rained down fire and brimstone upon them. but Lot and his family were spared. And so this morning, uh, we're going to seemingly have a case of deja vu. Uh, You'll think we have gone eight chapters back, as this morning we will continue in Genesis chapter 20, and we will almost seemingly brush back over an event that has happened in Abraham's life. And I know today that what we're really going to look at is that we're going to see Abraham show sort of a weakness in faith, sort of a lapse in judgment as he travels. Uh, And in this, it's a time where he ought to by now really truly understand that he can trust in the Lord. Uh, John Piper, a great preacher, uh, once said that one of the greatest enemies of hope is forgetting God's promises. And this is truly what we're going to look at today as we're examining Genesis chapter 20. Uh, Today, we will also see, though, God's mercy on full display in the lives of these three main people that we're going to focus on in the passage here. And we're going to see that God's promises always stand and His plans cannot be thwarted. And with that being said, if you'll turn in your Bibles with me this morning to Genesis chapter 20. We'll start reading in verse 1 to verse 7. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived with the Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. We've heard this song and dance before. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream and by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her... Know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. 
the reason that this all has taken place, if you remember from back in Genesis chapter 18, as Pastor Craig spoke on last week, Abraham was given sort of a glimpse into what God was going to do in the land of Sodom. And he knew that the full reason for this was because of their wickedness. And so Abraham here, as we will read later, has sort of assumed that any city that he will travel to will also be just as wicked and just as corrupt. And so once again, he uses this same ploy, the same sort of deceptive trick that he had pulled back in Egypt. And that when he would introduce Sarah to people, he would introduce her as my sister. And so we go on and we see something extraordinary in this passage, though. That God would come to Abimelech in a dream and bring to his attention what he has done. And not only what he has done, but who this woman is. And in this dream, let's go ahead and take a look once more at verse 3, and we'll see the charge that God brings against him. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. And so here God has made him aware. As we'll see in just a moment, you know, Abimelech goes through and he says, Well, Lord, don't you realize that I'm the one who's been tricked here? Everybody in this situation has said, well, she's my sister and he's my brother. And so how would I be to know that this would happen? And it's very interesting. If we would look there at verse 4, it says, Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he's not done anything with her yet. Uh, more than likely he has, uh, as a person of power, he would probably have a harem of women, and she has just been added to the harem. And uh, this is him assuring, you know, I have not done anything yet. But it goes on, and we see this very, very interesting phrase here from Abimelech. Lord, will you kill an innocent people? This is the same question that Abraham had just asked last week when we went through Genesis chapter 18. When he's trying to plead his case for Lot and his family to be spared. Abraham had said, you know, Lord, if there was 45 people there, would you do it? Lord, if there was 40, if there was 30, if there was 20, as he goes on and on and on. And so, really, he's trying to plead his case here. And now... What he is pleading on behalf is his innocence here. And yet from God's response, we see something very, very important. Because as he goes on, he says, Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister, and she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Now, although God will point out here in this next verse, he says, You're right. You have done this out of the integrity of your heart. But there's an important thing to be seen here. Is that in the case of Abimelech and the same with us today, that ignorance does not equate to innocence. Here he is saying, because, just because you have not known this does not mean that you are just able to wipe your hands clean and walk away from all of this. This is why God then informs him. He says, yes, I do know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. He says, and it was 
I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. We see something very interesting here. We get a look. So often we see the human side of things. We see the human side of sin or innocence or repentance. But here, God makes it very clear that he is protecting his sovereign will. This promise that he has given to Abraham and Sarah. And he's saying, you know, let's not get things twisted here. I am the one who has kept you from doing all of this. And what God is really making clear here is that if God were to withdraw from us completely, as we truly only know to be that of the case for that of hell. And this is why we see an overabundance of sinfulness, an overabundance of pride, a lack of repentance. It's because if God were to fully withdraw himself, we would see people at their most wicked. And here God is making clear that it is I who has allowed you to not do all of this. It's by my power and by my will that you have not done this. And yet, again, he's giving him a chance here to get out of this situation. He's telling him all of this, and yet he's ultimately giving him a way to receive forgiveness for this. And so this morning, we will focus on two major acts of mercy that we see in this story. And the first that we see here this morning is God's mercy in granting repentance. I think that one major thing that many, many may agree with, but there may be just as many that would disagree with, is that mercy is not owed to people. Grace is not an something that is owed to anybody. If it were an owed thing, it would not be grace. It would be something that I deserve anyways. And so here God is showing mercy in him. Could he not very much as well have said, well, you're right. You did not know. But in the end, this is still sin and it is wrong. And therefore you will be punished. And God would have been right in doing so. That is why God is judge. God is justice. And yet, for many of us today, we think that we sort of see ourselves by ourselves. We base each other on the people at our church, the people at our work. And we say, well, you know, I'm not too far off from where they are. You know, aren't they so much worse than me? But it is God's mercy when he grants somebody repentance. It's a very merciful thing when he does this. We're very hard-hearted people. And we see the same sentiment expressed in Psalm chapter 51. In Psalm chapter 51, David is writing this just after what has happened with Bathsheba. And in verse 4, he says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David is saying, you're right. I have sinned against Uriah and I have sinned against Bathsheba, but the ultimate person who I have sinned against, who Abimelech has sinned against here, is God. Amen. If I were to spread a rumor, if I were to 
kill a person. It's very true that I have sinned against that person. One could even make the case I've sinned against that person's family and taking a loved one from them. But the ultimate person that I have sinned against is God. And this is the forefront of what God is bringing to his attention. And as we go on, we could really see today the mercy that God has showed to us. And that he grants us not to go to Abraham as Abimelech here is commanded to go. But he's given us a savior in Jesus Christ. So that we may go to him to have our sins forgiven. And lastly, we do notice one very interesting thing there in verse 7. The Lord says, now then, return this man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But, if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Again, this is not a case of, well, you didn't understand what was going on. Everybody makes mistakes. You know, she can keep around because ultimately you were the one who was deceived. What God is trying to make so clear here is what we would call nowadays, we would say two wrongs don't make a right. He's making very clear even though, yes, you have done this out of integrity, out of an ignorance, not knowing of who she and he truly were, this does not make you innocent. And if you should choose to not return her, if you should choose to try and keep her here with you, then you shall die, you and all who are yours. And so, what a gift of mercy that God would open our eyes and give us a new heart to the sinfulness and the wickedness that we do. And that all throughout our lives we really have no sorrow for until the Lord makes the gospel message so clear to us. And this is a great act of mercy. And then as we go on, we'll look beginning in verse 8. In verse 8, it says, So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, all the things that he had heard in this dream. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called to Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me at every place which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. As Abimelech has woken up from this dream, this revelation that God has given him, he goes to his men, and they are rightfully afraid. Imagine your boss comes in, 
He says, guys, if we don't hit numbers today, God's told me he's killing us. This is it. I'm going to work extra hard to make sure whatever the Lord has asked me to do will get done. And so then we see Abimelech go to Abraham. And what shame Abraham must have felt for somebody he thought had no fear of God in his life. Somebody that was just as wicked as those men and women of Sodom. Come to him and not unjustly tell him how he has sinned against him, but justly so. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible Commentary says this, There might have been few or none who feared God, but what a sad thing when men of the world show a higher sense of honor and a greater abhorrence of crimes than a true worshiper. What a sad thing that would be for somebody who we would see as an unbeliever to have more a hatred for wicked things of the world than we would. And Abimelech here has brought a very serious charge against him. Very sincere and honest. And if we were in the same place, questions we would probably be asking ourselves. He says, what have you done to us? He says, how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not be done. And then he asks this final question of what did you see that you did this thing? Abimelech does not mince words here. He very much brings the hurt and the full weight of the sorrow of what God has brought upon him back to Abraham. And he's saying, I just need to understand why you have done what you have done. For many of us that have seen wicked things happen in the world, when a tragedy strikes that somebody just does something truly horrific to another person. One of the main things that we see when the court cases may be televised or we hear about them in the newspapers is there's typically always a member of the family or a friend who says, I just need to know why. Why have you done this? Is there a reason or a purpose behind what you have done? And it's worth noting here that, again, Abraham has had many promises already delivered to him by this point. And for God to have not allowed him safety here would have broken this promise, something we knew that God is not capable of. God does not make us a promise that he is not able to fulfill. And so Abraham ought to have had the faith and the trust in the Lord that this would be the case. And yet we see instead Abraham's response. There in verse 11 it says, Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. I feel like the first time you let it slide. But if I were to have been around Abraham and this situation happened two times... At some point, you've got to say, Abraham, I don't think she looks as good as you think she does, buddy. I really, I mean, one time's enough. Two times, two times, it's, she looks so good that if I go to this land, they're going to kill me. But here, 
This is exactly the case that he's brought, and it's less of how she looks, and it's less of who she is, and it has everything to do with that first part of the sentence. There is no fear of God at all in this place. We know from Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That being a godly knowledge, that being the knowledge and being able to fully comprehend who God is and to understand His truths. But more importantly, what Abraham is more concerned about is what would have been written about in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 6. Which tells us that it is by the fear of the Lord that one turns away from evil. And this is Abraham's concern. If I go to this land and they care nothing about who God is, they care nothing for the Lord at all, that just like in Sodom, we're going to see wicked people trying to do wicked and perverse things. And I've got to make sure that my wife is protected, that I am protected, because I've got this great thing to do for the Lord. And he then points out one other thing. He says, besides, she is indeed my sister, or more notably, his half-sister, as he points out here by saying, she is the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And so he's saying here, technically, technically, I didn't lie. And yet, we can truly see here that this is simply an excuse that Abraham is bringing about to try and justify himself before this person that he has wronged. And yet, Abimelech is not wrong in his assessment of what has been done against him. He is very much so justified in saying how Abraham has misled him. And yet, throughout all of this, we see one final great act of mercy in this story. That being God's mercy and Abraham and Sarah's preservation and their perseverance. Just the same as God could have judged Abimelech and been right in doing so, so too could God have said, Abraham, you and Sarah have been a handful. Since the beginning, you've laughed at my promises. You've lacked faith multiple times since the beginning. And I'll have no more of it. I'll use another person to bring about my promises. But he doesn't. John Newton once said, If it were possible for me to alter any part of his plan, I could only spoil it. If I could do anything to detract God's will, all I would do would be make it worse. But again, God's will can't be changed or altered. Not to spoil our Sunday school lessons in the near future, think of the story of Jonah. Jonah, who when he was given his command from God, said absolutely not and booked it in the opposite direction. He said, I'll have no part of this. God did not say, oh, well, if only he would have done it, Nineveh would have been saved. It was God's will for the nation of Nineveh to repent. This is why God sent a storm. God sent a great fish. 
God had that fish spew him back onto the shore. And God gave him another opportunity. Also that his will would be done. And what a blessing for us as well. That just as we examined on our final two weeks of that uh, Doctrines of Grace series. That it is not by our perfect obedience that we are held in Christ. Just as Dr. Lawson had said it throughout that series. And many of us would express that we felt the same way. That if it were up to me to have perfect obedience to God, I would be terrified to leave my bedroom. I'd be terrified to do anything. Because we're so often just willing to wander away. Just as we sang there this morning, prone to wander. And we're so quick sometimes to fall right back into a sin that we've struggled with. The same way here that Abraham has. Abraham, for the second time, has wronged another ruler. And yet, God does not give up on Abraham. God does not give up on Sarah. And God does not give up on us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. says, May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. We think of Paul's words as he tells us that he is faithful even when we are not faithful. And this is the true mercy of God. That rather than abandon us, God would choose to sanctify us. When He brings upon us, when we sin against Him, conviction. When He so wrings our heart and gives us the knowledge and the, really opens our eyes yet again to the sinfulness that we're committing against Him. And by doing so, we'll be led closer to the Lord. And this is a great act of mercy that God would not just leave us. Many of us struggle to comprehend this because when we deal with people day after day after day, whether they be friends, co-workers, even family members who seemingly make the same mistake time and time again and wrong us in the same way time and time again, there comes a point where for many of us, we reach that point where we say, you know, isn't this enough? Just as Peter, when he says, Lord, how many times should I forgive them? And he says, seven times, 70 times. Not meaning, as many of us have probably kept tally marks of those that have wronged us and said, we're coming pretty close to 491 here. But he's issuing this to say, we are to forgive time and time and time again. Just as God, in His mercy, forgives us time and time and time again. In the coming weeks, not to spoil too much, but we will see Abraham from this story here. We will see one of Abraham's greatest triumphs of faith. 
that I'm sure many of you already know exactly what I'm referring to. But this just goes to show that God had a purpose and he was willing to continue to see it out. And this morning we'll go ahead and finish in our text this morning. Picking back up in verse 14. It says, Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. It's interesting here that the first time that Abraham did this same ploy back in Egypt, once Pharaoh had made his peace with him by the gift that he had given him, Pharaoh's response was, Now please go. Please get out. Please don't come back. And yet Abimelech gives this gift and is just as merciful. There in verse 15, And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Now we have seen again that for many of us, when we are shown mercy, when we truly know the mercy that God has shown us, the grace that God has shown us, how much more willing we are to show it to others. So too has Abimelech been shown grace and mercy here and shows it not only through the giving of thanks to Abimelech here, but ensuring to Sarah, saying there, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all. Again, we see not only a love that God has shown that Abraham would be showing us that Abraham is a part of this, but that Sarah equally much so as his wife. And I think it is worth noting here that the last thing that we see here is the restoration of Abimelech and his servants. It says there in verse 17, Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. It is worth noting that again, while we see a healing that is given through repentance here, we must not overlook that it was mercy that was ultimately given to Abimelech here. We can also see this there as we, for those of you that were there through our study of Mark on Wednesday evenings, you remember that so often when people would come to Christ with some physical ailment or some need that they had that needed to be met, more often than not, as we saw most notably there in our study in Mark, the man that is lower down below to him through the rooftop, the first thing that he does is he says, your sins are forgiven. While yes, there was a great need for them to be healed and for them to be restored, 
There is no greater need that we have in this life than for us to be shown the mercy of God. There's no greater need that we have than for our sins to be justified before God. And this is the beauty of God granting anyone repentance. We would look all throughout the New Testament and see that repenting and believing in God is really the first steps of a lifelong of salvation. Seen also, as we just read earlier, also being sanctified throughout our lives. And yet, here, just as Pastor Craig had discussed last week, what we are truly needing is for our sins to be atoned for. We need Christ's righteousness imputed to us, for we lack it ourselves. And so this morning, maybe somebody here is hearing these words for the first time. You've not truly understood the need to call out to God for forgiveness. Just as we have said here, when we stand before God one day, ignorance will not equate with innocence. We cannot stand before God and give any excuse. We must understand exactly what is going on in our lives. We must stop, if this is you this morning, we must stop dulling our conscience by assuring ourselves that we are good. Romans chapter 3 verse 12 tells us that no one is good, not even one. And it goes further in verse 23 to say that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Amen. This is why we have a great need for Christ. And if you've not placed your faith in Christ, I urge you to more, this morning to come to Christ in saving faith. And maybe today you've already come to Christ in faith. And just as we've read and seen in the life of Abraham... Maybe there is a sin that just as Abraham has returned to it two times, maybe you've already hit your second time, your third time, your fourth time, and this is something you've struggled with continually. When Christ commands us to repent and believe in the gospel, this is not a past tense. This is a present tense commandment that we are continually to repent. We're continually to pray and ask God to reveal the sin in our lives so that we may put it to death by the grace of God. This morning, I pray that we will be continually led by the great truths of His Word and grow in our faith and that we may trust fully in God and in His Word and lean not into our own understanding.